0: The path of married life may appear beautiful and full of happiness, but why may not you be disappointed as thousands of others have been? And I want to say, really? Well, that's an attractive future.
1: Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker
0: and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism.
1: Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. This week, we continue our series examining the Seventh-day Adventist fundamental beliefs with number 23 on marriage and the family. Can you believe, Colleen, that we only have five left? No, I can't. (laughs) I cannot believe it. And given the topic that we'll be covering today, there may be some content that you don't want your children to listen to, so just a little fair warning. Now, this doctrine is cloaked in moral language that builds the generational propagation and preservation of the organization right into its philosophy of righteousness and moral failure. It's another great example of the bite model type of mind control used by cultic groups. If you don't know what I'm referring to, go back and listen to episode number two where we talk about mind control and yes. Seventh-day Adventism. Growing up a multi-generational Adventist, the ideas presented in this doctrine are as normal-sounding as a 12-month calendar year. <laughs> Adventists only marry Adventists. Good Adventist kids attend Sabbath school every week and go to Adventist school from pre-first to postgraduate university. Children learn to be good Adventists from their good Adventist parents who have family worship every day, twice if they're really good. <laughs> like Richard's family. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if parents do all this right, their kids marry Adventists and don't leave the group when they're grown, thus, winning their souls for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. As one would expect with any solid bite model method of behavior control, mingling with the world outside of the Adventist system, when there is a perfectly good option to remain insulated, (laughs) is strongly discouraged and can even be seen as a moral flaw or lack of true commitment to God's special remnant message. This system has its own replication built into it, so that even if the message of Adventism has little success in the secular world, it will continue to survive on the offspring of its members." As we know, leaving Adventism for a Christian church is not acceptable. And so, woven into these fundamental doctrines is a commitment to keep like with like at all times. And this doctrine tells us one way to do this. But before we begin to unpack the chapter, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. So, please write to us at formeradventistgmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new ministry material every Friday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and if this podcast has been an aid to you in your journey out of Adventism, we would love for you to share your experience by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So Colleen, I have a question for you. (laughs) Oh oh dear. (laughs) After reading this chapter, can you recall any family that you knew inside of Adventism or that you've become familiar with after leaving Adventism as you work with former Adventists Mm -hmm. who mirror what you read about this week? No. This chapter is flowery, syrupy. Saccharine
0: is the word that came to mind. As I read it, I felt ick. I don't even know how else to explain it. Ick. Mm-hmm. It's moralisms. It's moral teachings. It's quoting from even from many non-Adventist sources for how to do good marriage and how to do good parenting. And I know absolutely that inside Adventist families, there's chaos, depression, abuse, anxiety, unresolved things that never go away because their worldview is completely false and they have no way to resolve their conflicts. Mm -hmm. In fact, it reminds me of when we decided we'd take our kids out of Adventist school and put them into a Christian school when we were leaving. Our younger son was going into the sixth grade and he was upset at changing schools. And I sat him down and said, so why do you think we want to change schools for you? Because it's Adventist. And I said, well, what's wrong with Adventist? And he said, Ellen White. And I said, well, what's wrong with Ellen White? And he said, she was a false prophet. Now, I I have to remind myself when I think about this story, I didn't know where I was going with this because this was a conversation I hadn't premeditated. I was sitting on the couch beside this 11-year-old boy praying as I went because I didn't know exactly where to go with it. And when he said she was a false prophet, I remember saying to him, Well, if she was a false prophet, where did her visions come from? Nikki, I had never thought of that before. That question had never actually entered my head. Mm -hmm. And he said, Satan, and I said, praying as I went, because Satan is part of the way Adventism is founded and is part of the formation of the doctrines, they can never resolve their conflicts because they don't have truth. And I said, Satan has a claim on Adventism. And when we send you to a Christian school, it won't be that there won't be problems, but the foundation will be Jesus and truth instead of a false religion and a false prophet that had ideas from Satan. There will be hope for resolving conflicts. There will be hope for having good relationships. And that kid sat next to me, unfolded his arms, his body relaxed, and he said, Oh, okay. I will never forget that, but I was horrified, and I went to the phone and called Richard and told him about the conversation with our son had just said, and he was quiet a moment, and he says, I think he's right. And when I think about this chapter, Nikki, that's what I think of. This chapter is presenting itself as, oh, so Christian. Oh, so mainstream. Oh, so biblical. Oh, so pro-family, pro-life, pro-children, pro-parent. And yet behind the scenes, I know what Ellen White said. And most Adventists do too. And even if they don't know what she said, they were raised in the shadow of what she said. This isn't how Adventist families function. What about you? What was your reaction to
1: this? I was just frustrated because I felt like I could see right through what they were doing. Yeah, They were trying to sound Christian. Mm -hmm. They even pulled in some... Some stuff that the secular world would agree with related Mm -hmm. to family and the benefits of family. And they kind of packaged all of this together to Mm -hmm. look good and acceptable. And then they tucked in all of these shackles, you know, like we've talked about in the past, more shackles to keep people in Adventism. They've moralized Even Adventist education, and so they usually find a way to betray their anti-Trinitarian perspective. Yes, they do in their chapters. The other thing that was interesting to me too in the chapter is they talk about marriage and they talk about the unity of the husband and the wife. Even there, they betray their poor understanding of the gospel. When you understand that marriage is a picture of of Christ and His church, it was just really frustrating. I don't know how else to answer it. I I just felt felt very frustrated through the chapter. Even felt like some of their descriptions of marriage were a little hallmarky. Oh, yes. They don't leave a lot of room for true biblical marriage on this earth. (laughs) It's true. With (laughs) the sinners. So true. Yeah, it's
0: not real. It didn't feel real. It didn't address real issues. And what I realized is I read through this chapter that... All of these high flowery sounding explanations of how good marriage is and how wonderful parenting is, et cetera, et cetera, was actually headed towards one goal make
1: new Adventists yeah. and keep them in. Yeah. And if you don't, it's on you. Exactly. And then in the background, as you're reading the chapter, don't you have all of those other quotes that you've read in the past that Ellen White has written about marriage Uh and about raising children and about children in general? Yes. It was kind of horrifying to know what the prophet really taught and what they're trying to present to the world with this chapter.
0: And they are trying to conceal what the prophet really taught. And yet, they are designing the goal and focus of this chapter on her ideas, it's the most double speak, frustrating, this is one more of those alligator claws that pins you down and makes you realize that if you don't propagate Adventism in your life and family,
1: you're lost forever. One of the features of a bite model system is is that you don't expose all of what is behind the group at first. As you're trying to get people in, there's a lot you don't expose. And Ellen White had an awful lot to say about marital sex and about raising children sexually pure. In fact, that whole health message
0: really originally was about staying sexually pure, keeping your husband pure, keeping yourself pure, and making your children pure.
1: Even if it means tying their hands to the bedposts. Absolutely. And she did write that. But
0: this chapter doesn't mention that. So why don't we read the doctrine? Again, it's a pretty long doctrine, which is an interesting thing, because whoever heard of how to have marriage in the family, just marriage in the family being a basic fundamental belief for a church? Yeah,
1: this is part of what they have to sign in order to be baptized. Yeah and it's interesting that contained in it is a commitment to get your kids in Adventist education this again is it's more dollar signs so this is fundamental belief 23 marriage and the family marriage was divinely established in Eden and affirmed by Jesus to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman in loving companionship For the Christian, a marriage commitment is to God as well as to the spouse and should be entered into only between a man and a woman who share a common faith. Mutual love, honor, respect, and responsibility are the fabric of this relationship, which is to reflect the love, sanctity, closeness, and permanence of the relationship between Christ and His Church. Regarding divorce, Jesus taught that the person who divorces a spouse except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. Although some family relationships may fall short of the ideal, a man and a woman who fully commit themselves to each other in Christ through marriage may achieve loving unity through the guidance of the Spirit and the nurture of the Church. God blesses the family and intends that its members shall assist each other toward complete maturity. Increasing family closeness is one of the earmarks of the final gospel message Parents are to bring up their children to love and obey the Lord. By their example and their words, they are to teach them that Christ is a loving, tender, and caring guide who wants them to become members of His body, the family of God, which embraces both single and married persons. I don't know why this one is so particularly nauseous to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you read through this. What stands out to you, Nikki? What, What grabs you in this one? Coming from the perspective of knowing Adventism.
1: Shall we start at the top and work our way down? (laughs) Yes. There's so much here. Well, first of all, they talk about marriage being a loving companionship. And in fact, marriage is a covenant relationship that reflects the relationship of Christ and His church. They also talk about the fact that a man and a woman should share a common faith. And anyone who spent any time in Adventism ought to be able to understand their saying Adventists marry Adventists. Absolutely. That's what that's talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. They even take 1 Corinthians 7, 7, where Paul talks about not being unequally yoked with mm-hmm. unbelievers, and they make that say, you see, you can't marry an unbeliever. If you're an Adventist, you can't marry just a normal Sunday Christian. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I would agree with that, but for the opposite reason. <laughs> right. The Christian will be blindsided by the cultic nature of the Adventism and you'll never get out of the web.
1: It really is sad. People will date and fall in love and get married, and then there's the battle. What do we do? What day do we go to church on? And it happens to get much worse when the children come
0: because Adventists feel instinctively, based on the worldview, but they don't even always know where it comes from. They instinctively know that they are responsible for their children being Adventist.
1: Yeah, and that if they don't keep that Sabbath, And they're here for the last days. Everybody's going to die. Yeah.
0: One thing that really bothers me about this statement, and it's through the whole chapter, I am really tired of reading them referring to themselves as the church. Now, they don't say, we are the church. They just say things like, marriage is to reflect the permanence of the relationship between Christ and His church. They mean themselves, but Christ and His church means something different. His church is composed of those who trust Him and believe and are born again, and they don't have any concept of that, and they don't have the true gospel. So for them to use that phrase and appropriate it to themselves is misleading, and it sounds good to a person who is outside, but inside is just more confusion and more guilt.
1: I thought it was somewhat amusing that they believe that the Adventist church will help you grow in your marriage. <laughs> I know it's... <laughs> That that will be more amusing to our listeners probably by the end of the podcast. Yes.
0: Yes, I agree. I can't even imagine the Adventist church helping anybody grow in their marriage. I'm just saying. And another thing that really was a standout to me in this statement is increasing family closeness is one of the earmarks of the final
1: gospel message. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that was frustrating. That's counter to the words of Christ. What did he say? Well, that's found in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 39. I have them here. You want me to read them? Please. He said, "'Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me.'" And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And that is the truth. Jesus
0: himself is a sword. That comes in between the closest of relationships if one person in the relationship becomes a true believer and is born again and the other one does not. It doesn't mean the relationship is lost or severed necessarily, but it will be difficult and there will be a lack of spiritual unity. This idea, from an Adventist perspective, that increasing family closeness is an earmark of the final gospel message is just cult talk. It's not truth. And it's not related to the pure gospel. This is guilt being heaped on the members saying, get your house in order, get your marriage looking good, get your children looking good to everybody, because that's a mark that we have the true church and our public presentation has to look like we're all about the family.
1: Well, and you know, Colleen, it's a sad thing, but they kind of know what they're doing. How many times have we had conversations with Christians who didn't know Adventism taught a false gospel and their response is, but they're such nice people. That's really frustrating to me
0: because it's it's a kind of like a, a veneer or a barrier that it's hard to penetrate. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain that there is a different worldview in Adventism than there is in Christianity. And Christians don't understand that that lovely family who brings them the fresh bread <laughs> or the hot cookies or just is chatting over the fence or is their dentist or their doctor they don't understand that that facade is representing a different jesus a different worldview a different view of humanity a different view of salvation and it's really hard to help somebody understand that if they're not willing to know
1: yeah and i understand the desire to not to not want to come across unkind right but it is the most severe unkindness to cut someone off from the truth of the gospel because you don't want to offend them these kind people need to know the truth. Yes, they do. And these kind people, who many of whom are
0: extremely sincere and want to serve God as they understand it, these kind people need peace in their private lives. Mm-hmm. This chapter would never let you know what they really live with.
1: You know, one other thing that jumped out at the end of this, they refer to Christ as a guide. Yes. Who wants children to become members of his body. I was struck by that too, Nikki. What's wrong with that? Well, from their perspective... He's an example. Yes. He's showing them how to get saved, how to join the family of God. But according to scripture, he's not the guide. No. He's the Messiah. He's the one who came and brought life and who raises us to life and who places us in the body of Christ when we put our faith and trust in him. That's so true. And what this chapter
0: does not deal with, this chapter actually makes a bit of an idol out of the idea of a family. Now, it's true that God created humans to have families. That was what his original intention was in Eden. That is his will for humanity. But the fact is that when Jesus came, he revealed a new definition for family in him. And I will never forget how I used to wonder how Jesus could be so rude when people came to him and told him that his mother and his brothers were outside and wanted to talk to him. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he pointed at his disciples and said, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my father. He redefined family. And that has brought me so much comfort on this side of Adventism because you know what? You know this even better than I do, Nikki. We lose family Mm -hmm. when we leave Adventism. The human family is not the
1: idol that this chapter makes it look like. Not only the idol, but the road to salvation. They make it a salvific issue. Yes, they do. I hadn't
0: thought of it that way quite. In fact, I'm going to read a quote here from Ellen, because this is so clear to me that this is a salvation issue. And this chapter doesn't reveal this, but these things are all in the background. She says, and this is from um, one of her letters. It's from a collection called the LNG White Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 1. Parents, I saw, stood in the place of God to their children, and they will have to render an awful account whether they have been faithful to the little few that have been committed to their trust. I saw that you were rearing children to be cut down by the destroying angel unless you speedily turn square about and be faithful to your children. Think you that God can cover or hide iniquity in children and preserve them whom he hates? No, never. God hates unruly children who manifest passion and evil tempers, etc., He cannot save them in the time of trouble. They will be eternally lost through parents' neglect. Their blood will be upon their parents. How can parents be saved with the blood of their children upon them when they might have saved their children? Nikki, I believed that. I believed as an Adventist that my children's belief in God and being at first Adventist depended on me, and I would be guilty before God if they didn't accept my views of Adventism. That's doctrines of demons. Yes, but that's underlying this chapter. Now, this chapter doesn't quote anything that harsh, no. but it makes it very clear that this is the goal of family. You make little Adventists, you keep them Adventist, and you keep your marriage looking good, no matter how it feels but you keep that marriage looking good on the outside so that people will be attracted.
1: They say right in their introduction that the home is a primary setting for the restoration of the image of God in men and women. And they say that harmonious family life demonstrates the principles of Christianity truly lived out, revealing the character of God. That's high responsibility. Yeah. And if you don't have harmonious family
0: life, then you're failing God by not representing Him. Mm -hmm. You're not revealing Him. And how on earth are you supposed to have a harmonious family life when you enter marriage with so much guilt and so much expectation and so much denominational demand that you behave in a certain way and that you better like it? It brings me back to what we've said about fundamental belief number 18. That's where we met the alligator. That's where we met Ellen White. And Ellen White is like Adventism's secret sauce. They can sound pretty normal if they just talk about the subjects that Christians talk about, even marriage and family. They can sound pretty normal. But they've tucked Ellen White into the center of their belief system. And when you accept that she is the voice of God, every single word she wrote is current, present truth Mm -hmm. because it came from her and she has prophetic authority. So, even if you don't know that she wrote a paragraph like that, condemning parents to eternal damnation if they don't make their hateful children be good, even if you don't know she wrote that, you somehow implicitly are infused with that sort of fear and anger. It colors the Adventist family because it comes from the prophet, and everything they say is derived from these things, and that's only
1: one of many things she has said. You know, I I noticed a lot of generational abuse inside Adventism, multi-generational Adventist families. And I've wondered since leaving if some of that started way back listening to some of the stuff that she's written to families about how to take care of their children and what to expect from them. Even if she never told parents to beat their children, The fact that she put the salvation of their souls squarely on the shoulders of the parents would create a franticness in the parents that would drive desperate measures Mm -hmm. to get their children in line. So spiritual abuse has consequences that trickle down in really horrifying ways. I know that when our boys were little, I felt a lot of that franticness. I have to get this all
0: in order. Mm -hmm. It's just horrifying to me now when I think about the way I would feel and the way I would project my own anxiety to my children. You know, I have to say the Lord has been so gracious as He's brought me into Himself and brought our children out into Himself too. But I remember so distinctly when our younger son was 16, I realized one night that my franticness with (laughs) His— Typical teenage lack of willing obedience to do whatever I said (laughs) at the moment I said it. Eager to please. Uh (laughs) I realized that my franticness was becoming a terrible assault on him. Mm -hmm. I realized he's a very sensitive, he was a very sensitive boy and he felt deeply, but he was very quiet. And I realized that my franticness toward him was like twisting a knife in his heart. And I'll never forget how the Lord convicted me of that one night when I was doing dishes. And I just burst into tears and I said, please forgive me. And I realized I had to go and ask him to forgive me. I had to ask my son. I went to his room and I told him what I just said. I realized that what I've been doing has been like twisting a knife in you and I'm truly sorry. And I want you to forgive me. And my commitment is not to do that anymore. And I'll never forget him looking at me and saying, I forgive you. And my relationship with him changed from that moment, and I never again had the impulse to scream at him. That was the Lord. But that franticness came from this Adventist thing, and the Lord had to take me out of that and realize I am not responsible for my son's accepting or loving the Lord or being the person he's supposed to be. I am to love him for God. I am to hold him accountable. But when he becomes a teenager, the Lord has other ways of dealing with him besides just me, and my franticness is only going to be counterproductive, and the Lord had to show me that. And I still say, of course, I'm sure my temperament was part of that, but I know it was this Adventist foundation that all of that sprang from. It was so destructive. Adventism does not
1: know how to make good parents or faithful children. It's a sham. That's the Holy Spirit teaching. The writings of Ellen White suppress the Holy Spirit's teaching. And when you believe the worldview that she created with her whole
0: prehistory Great Controversy model, when you believe that God is not the eternal, almighty Trinity, when you believe that they're three separate beings and that Jesus could have failed, you have no foundation in reality that's actually true. And what can you do except believe whoever presents themselves as the loudest, authoritative
1: voice? And that would be Ellen. Yeah, a greater mind than ours. Yeah. And like we said last week... Adventism places an incredible amount of responsibility on our shoulders to save souls, to win souls for the kingdom. It's about us. It's not about the sovereign triune God, like you said. You see this anti-Trinitarian view of God in their next section where they talk about male and female being created in the image of God. They say, Just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, male and female together are to make up man. And like God though man and woman are to be one in unity, they are not the same in function. They are equal in being, in worth, but not identical in person. So, God is equal in being. He isn't one being. And the Adventist God isn't. Right. This brings me back to the way I was
0: taught the Trinity in Adventist school. I was taught that the Trinity is like a family, just like they're hinting here, the husband, the wife, and the child. Are like our friend Sharon Carey said she believed the Trinity to be, as an Adventist, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much summed up how I thought of the Trinity as an Adventist. Yeah, well, and if you think about God that way, then you actually put yourself or Ellen in that mix. Because... You can tell by the the tone of your voice that they each have different levels of power and yes. ability, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you need Ellen White to come in and fill in another hole. Mm-hmm. And you need us to come in and save souls and vindicate God. Right. And we become this big group unified effort to save humanity and God. Yes. And that's important to save humanity
0: and God. Because ultimately we save God's reputation to the universe. What a burden. No wonder Ellen White said things that made parents quiver in their boots. I just have to say, she even said this. We should not make it a practice to place upon our tables food, which would injure the health of our children. Our food should be prepared free from spices. Mince pies, cakes, preserves, and highly seasoned meats with gravies create a feverish condition in the system and inflame, what do you suppose... Animal passions. Exactly. We should teach our children to practice habits of
1: self-denial
0: that the great battle of life is with self, to restrain the passions and bring them into subjection to the mental and moral faculties. There is nothing here about teaching your child to trust the Lord. There is nothing here about the Lord Jesus loving us, the Father loving us, the Spirit loving us, and sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. No, it's beat them into submission and figuratively or reality and make them get their minds in order and submit to moral authority that comes from Ellen. And one last thing she said about children here, and this was from a letter she wrote to her own son, Willie. The Lord loves those little children who try to do right. Right. And he has promised that they shall be in his kingdom, but wicked, naughty children God does not love. He will not take them to the beautiful city, for he only admits the good, obedient, and patient children there. One fretful, disobedient child would spoil all the harmony of heaven.
1: I hear things like that, and I think of the things some people will say about how she wrote some really good things. She was a great devotional writer. I don't think she was a prophet, but she wrote some really good things. I don't care if she wrote some really good things. She wrote that, and that's enough to discard her. Absolutely. she's misrepresenting God. Yes, she is. And she herself said either everything she wrote is from God or it isn't, including her letters. Yes.
0: And then this brings me back to this paragraph you had just referred to, where she has misrepresented the Trinity again comparing the Trinity to the man and the woman and their likeness and unlikeness. No, God is one, and we as humans do not provide the definition and understanding for what the Trinity is. It's the other way around. When we accept what the Bible says about God, we understand our own place in the universe, and we start to see God is sovereign, and we can't explain Him. Ellen loved to explain God. And tell
1: us what he thought. And we believed her because she claimed to have seen him and heard him. You know, this goes back to their nature of man and nature of God. They believe that being made in the image of God is being made into a relationship or being able to um, relate to one another, to work together. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are some really intelligent animal species Uh who are monogamous Who relate to one another in some form, who work together in some form. Even birds. Yeah. Really smart species. God is spirit, and we are made in the image of God. We have spirits. I know Adventists don't like that. I know. But we do. We have a human spirit. It's from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Yes. There's evidence for the human spirit in Scripture. The animals don't have spirits. So I really believe that that's a big part of what it is to be made in the image of God. It's why we are image bearers, whether we are born again or not. Absolutely. And the difference between the born again and the unborn
0: again is what Paul describes in Ephesians 2 1 to 3 and in Romans 3. It's being born dead in sin. It's what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. Their spirits didn't cease to exist, but they were disconnected from God's life. Because of their disobedience. And that's what we inherit from them. So, by nature, we have spirits, but they're dead. They're under the domain of darkness, under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. But God, who is outside of the domain of darkness and present everywhere, sees us and calls us out and reveals the Son to us. And when we trust Him, He transfers us into the kingdom of His Son. That's the difference. We're image bearers whether or not, as you said, whether or not we're born again. But when we meet Jesus, we become born again and receive His life. That's the difference. And this book talks about teaching Adventism as
1: recreating the image of God in children, and that's not true. No, you're not going to find any scripture to support that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when they talk about marriage— and they describe kind of like the perfect marriage. I have in my notes hallmark marriage uh-huh. because there are like <laughs> no problems. But at the end of it, they say, Two become one flesh means that two persons become completely one with body, soul, and spirit. And yet there remain two different persons. What on earth do the Adventists mean when they say husband and wife become one spirit? What does that mean to them? I don't know unless it just means Attitude it must. The spirit of positivity, we're working together. I don't know. (laughs) We're going to make our children Adventists. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's definitely a part of this. They talk about walking together, and this is where they get into Adventists marrying Adventists. Yes, They say, clearly, Scripture intends that believers should marry only believers, but the principle extends even beyond this. True oneness demands an agreement as to beliefs and practices. Differences in religious experience lead to differences in lifestyle that can create deep tensions and rifts in marriage. To achieve the oneness scripture speaks of, people should marry others within their own communion. There it is. You know, I want to just say
0: I get actually quite a few emails from people who say, I'm dating an Adventist, or I'm engaged to an Adventist, or my son is dating an Adventist. What should we do? Is this a problem? Can this work? And I want to say right here, in the Fundamental Belief book, Adventists themselves tell you, from their perspective, this can't work. And I want to say this again, if an Adventist is dating a non-Adventist, even if the non-Adventist is a Christian, a true born-again Christian, and Christians can be deceived Thinking Adventists are Christians if they don't fully understand the Adventism. That Adventist has, I'm not even going to qualify it, that Adventist has the goal of making the non Adventist an Adventist. Adventists do not date non Adventists without the goal of making them Adventist. And it's right here in their fundamental belief book. They can't really marry a non Adventist. Now, it happens, they do sometimes. But the tension of what do we do with what day do we go to church? And when the children come, it becomes a huge problem. The Adventist is responsible, as we've heard Ellen White say, for making their children Adventists. That Adventist will have a franticness about making sure
1: those children go to Sabbath school and church Mm -hmm. and things fall apart. I want to say, even if somebody listening to this is married to an Adventist, they have kids and the Adventist is kind of just apathetic to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They won't be as they start to hear headlines about a Sunday law. That's right. They will not be. You will watch them turn. It's not possible to overstate
0: how thoroughly the Adventist worldview colors an Adventist thinking, interpretation of current events, interpretation of scripture, and interpretation of their own children's behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible to overstate that. I say this from experience. I say that thinking back to that night when the Lord convicted me of how I was hurting my son. And I know that came out of the perfectionism I had grown up with, needing to be good, needing to be perfect, needing everything I did to reflect goodness. And I wasn't succeeding. And I realized my failure was in allowing my own frantic need to be perfect to hurt my child. Adventism is incompatible with the gospel, and it really shows up
1: in the family. This is such a wicked cult. It's interesting that you say that, because when I realized that our next fundamental belief was on marriage and family, I had incredible approach avoidance with this chapter. It was a very emotional thing just to pick it up and read it. I understand that. This organization has done untold damage to families.
0: And whatever you may read in their official literature is not what happens behind closed doors. You know, I don't know, clearly, all 21 million Adventists in the world, or 24, (laughs) whatever it is now, but I do know that since we have been working with Life Assurance Ministries since the year 2000, I have not met anybody coming out of Adventism who has not suffered some form of abuse. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that, like you said earlier, Nikki, the false worldview built on Ellen White's scenario, the false gospel, the false prophet, the false Jesus, the false way of salvation, that twists a person so they have no victory, they have no peace, they have nothing they can do except perfect their behavior. And for Adventist parents, the way their children perform their grades in school, their success with their music, their acceptance into the best schools, into a, a medical school, especially. The way their children perform is a public reflection in their minds on them as human beings. And as I came into belief in Christ, our sons were 11 and 15 when we took them out of Adventist schools. And as I came into greater and greater trust of Scripture and belief in the Lord Jesus, I began to realize that my feeling that my sons were a reflection of my success was just a false view. God made them individuals, and I was here to love them for Him and to help them learn to trust Him. I was not here to make them look good so that it could be proven that I was faithful so that it could be proven that my worldview and my Adventism was superior. Mm -hmm. And it's horrifying to me to think how twisting
1: all of that has been in Adventist families. That was one of the wonderful things that you taught me when I first started coming around. When I met you guys 11 years ago, Joshua was three and Abby was 10 months old. And so I raised them through their toddler years here in front of y'all. And I can't tell you how many times one of them would be on the floor crying or upset. And you would probably notice that I was getting tenser and tenser. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you would put your hand on my shoulder and you would say, it's okay, this isn't about you. And I would just relax and I would feel... Supported and you encouraged me to love those kids for the Lord, knowing that the Lord loves them more than I Mm -hmm. do and that He's got them and He's going to help me raise them. That's not the messaging that you get in Adventism. Not even. And if somebody listening is getting that message, I want you to know you're blessed. That's not the norm. That's not the norm. (laughs) That's not the norm. So as an Adventist, I knew that I had to raise my kids Adventist. Mm -hmm. I knew they had to be surrounded by Adventists, and all of our life choices had to be submitted to that reality. This book made even more clear the fact that that didn't come from my own head. That came from the culture I grew up in, where they're talking about children. They have a section under commitment and they say, Christian parents, they mean Adventists, are to dedicate their children to God's service at the earliest possible moment of life. Seventh-day Adventist congregations provide for such a dedication with a simple ceremony in which before the congregation, parents present their children to God in prayer. And then they go on to say, In this service, the parents also dedicate themselves to educate the child in the way of the Lord so that the image of God will be formed in the child. Oh, yes. To reach this goal, parents will bring their children to Sabbath school and church regularly so that the little ones become a part of the body of Christ early in life. Then, as the child reaches school age, the parents in church will make every effort to enable him or her to have the Christian, aka Adventist, Mm -hmm. education that will nurture that child's love for the Lord even further. You know, by the time I got to that paragraph, I'll admit, Nikki, I could hardly read it. The idea that the parents are in charge of placing the child in the body of Christ, are you kidding me? That is the monergistic work of God Himself. Absolutely, But that's what Ellen White said in those quotes I read earlier. And the parents are held responsible if it doesn't happen. And the church is to make every effort. You know, it's interesting. Christian education is expensive. Yes. And I'm talking Christian, not yeah. <laughs> Adventist. Adventist is expensive, but Christian education is expensive. I've noticed there doesn't seem to be a lot of churches paying for kids to go to Christian school, which was new to me. I wasn't right. used to that. And as I've thought more and more about it and reflected on that again with this chapter, I realized the reason that these Adventist schools are paying to put kids in Adventist schools, it's not just, oh, we're compassionate or we're socialistic. <laughs> <laughs> It's We need to keep these guys in. Absolutely, We need to keep this machine going. And so it's marketing. We're going to throw money at these churches. We're going to throw money at these schools so that we can keep pumping people through. And you know, behind the scenes, the
0: dirty little secret in Adventism is that membership in North America is dropping. It's growing in the poorer countries, the less historically developed countries, and Typically North America has been the money bags that primarily supported the church. Mm-hmm. I mean this is kind of a no-brainer after reading the stewardship doctrine last week. <laughs> yeah. But they have a crisis of first world if you want to call it that North American membership and they are desperate to keep their young people in adventism. There's nothing like putting the guilt on the parents. There's nothing like paying to get them into the Adventist schools because once they're indoctrinated, once they're married into another Adventist family, once the Adventist organization has educated them and perhaps employed them, Mm -hmm. you've got a family that's Adventist. And even if they don't agree with everything, like so many Adventists in Southern California
1: will say, oh, I don't agree with all that. Mm -hmm. They stay because their worldview is Adventist. I was a multi-generational Adventist, five generations in on my maternal side, and I can tell you there's a significant number of people on that side of the family who do not practice Adventism Mm -hmm. as you would expect them to, and yet they are 100% committed to the ultimate worldview of Adventism.
0: So what you just read is their modus operandi, they have to keep their kids Adventist. And this is all in the guise of, we're such a family-oriented religion. But the fact is, it's guilt-driven, it's pressure, it's mandates, it's false prophet-driven,
1: and your salvation is at stake if you don't make it happen. And they come right out and say, since the family is the very soul of the church and society— The Christian family itself will be the instrument of winning and holding its members for the Lord. The Christian family itself, a.k.a. Adventist, not
0: Christian. And I just have to say, and this is something that is probably harder to talk about than the parent-child thing, their expectations and their descriptions for how a marriage should look is so far afield from what Ellen White said that I found it really difficult to give any credence to this chapter, Yeah, except that I realized it was PR, like you said. It's PR talk. It's internal how-do-we-market-ourselves talk, because the reality is marriages don't look like this book says in Adventism. Ellen White had a lot to say about marriage, and it's pretty horrifying stuff, actually. I have a few quotes here from her, and I'm just going to read them, because this is underlying everything in this chapter. The people who wrote this chapter know this stuff, and they're not denying this stuff. They're just trying to give people tools so they can (laughs) fake it till you make it, I guess. Get them in the door. Yeah, get them in the door. One of Ellen's quotes that particularly hit me as a wife was one of her counsels for wives. And she says, I have also been shown and you notice, Nikki, how she always was shown mm-hmm. this horrifying stuff that she's about to say. And I want to say, I'm sure you were,
1: but it wasn't God who showed this to you.: That needs to get the attention of the hearer because she is claiming authority from God now. Everything that yes. comes next, she is claiming came from God. It binds the conscience of the
0: adventist believer. I have also been shown that there is often a great failure. On the part of the wife. She does not put forth strong efforts to control her own spirit and make home happy. There is often fretfulness and unnecessary complaining on her part. The husband comes home from his labor, weary and perplexed, and meets a clouded brow instead of cheerful, encouraging words. He is but human, and his affections become weaned from his wife." He loses the love of his home. His pathway is darkened and his courage destroyed. He yields his self-respect and the dignity which God requires him to maintain. I will freely admit, marriages have struggles. Women have struggles. Men have struggles. But what Ellen is saying here is that if a husband becomes unhappy, if his eye wanders, that's your fault. And I want to say, no, I am responsible to God for my behavior and she's not speaking to believers. The Bible speaks to believers. And the Bible tells me that a wife is to trust God. A wife is to be aware that the father is her father, and she's not to give way to any fear, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3. And that we're Sarah's daughters if we don't give way to fear, but respect and submit to our husbands. And God deals with our husbands. Mm -hmm. It's not my fault. It's not your fault if a husband's eye wanders. Well, it sounds like there's some good practical advice here. The underlying thought is you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty for the way you're treating your children. You're guilty for not educating them right. You're guilty for not treating your husband right. You're guilty for not feeling cheerful. And I want to say, knowing the Lord does change an attitude. Like, He changed my attitude towards my son. But that's not what she's talking about here. She's heaping
1: guilt and saying, get your behavior together. And if anyone thinks that that's just one example, we have a collection of them here, don't we? (laughs) Oh, yes, we do. I think this is
0: actually quite funny, the next one, in light of this chapter, because this chapter is saying what a lovely thing marriage is and should be and how, you know, there's to be this mutual care and kindness to one another, which I would not deny. And they call it the essence of Christianity in this chapter. (laughs) Yes. Do we sound a little cynical? (laughs) But here's a quote from um, Ellen White's. Adventist home. (laughs) And anybody who's been Adventist knows the shadow the Adventist home casts over the consciences of Adventist husbands and wives. Few have correct views of the marriage relation. Many seem to think that it is the attainment of perfect bliss. But if they could know one quarter of the heartaches of men and women that are bound by the marriage vow in chains that they cannot and dare not break, they would not be surprised that I trace these lines. Marriage, now this is the prophet speaking. Marriage, in a majority of cases, is a most galling yoke. There are thousands that are mated but not matched. The books of heaven are burdened with the woes, the wickedness, and the abuse that lie hidden under the marriage mantle. This is why. I would warn the young who are of a marriageable age to make haste slowly in the choice of a companion. The path of married life may appear beautiful and full of happiness, but why may not you be disappointed as thousands of others have been? And I want to say, really? Well, that's an attractive future. Nikki, you've often commented about um, Abby, your daughter's reaction to Uh visiting the Whites' home Uh in Battle Creek Village. Talk about that.
1: Oh, it's just really funny. She constantly talks about the fact that Ellen White kept her husband in the closet. (laughs) Because as you climb those narrow stairs and you turn the corner to enter into her room, which takes up most of the second floor of that house, you peek to the right and there's a door and you look in and it's the size of a closet. And there was a bed in there and the tour guide says, this is where James slept. (laughs) And you round the corner and go down the little hall and there's a huge room with, I think, two or three windows. And it was Ellen White's room with, a, I think, a double bed, maybe. Or at least it looks like it in that room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And a soft, comfortable chair, Mm -hmm. a rocking chair. What I thought when I saw that, and when I think about, James was kept in a closet. And I couldn't help thinking she received her visiting angel in that room. Mm -hmm. She would write about the handsome young man who visited her And people who served her would talk about the fact they could see the light coming under her door. And it wasn't the light from an oil lamp. It was the light from her handsome young man. She received somebody otherworldly in that room, but James wasn't there. And I just want to say the whole scenario of Ellen White and her visions and her dreams and their internal glimpses into their married life, if you will, I think of this paragraph I just read and thought, huh, she was speaking from her own experience.
1: Mm -hmm. She was a miserable
0: woman, I think, in many ways.
1: Yeah, and if you're ever bored and you want to read through some of the letters she wrote to various people, she tells them who they should and shouldn't marry and why, and so and so, he doesn't have a good enough job, and she's just bland. I mean... And I'd say to myself now, I look at those things and I think, why were you so
0: involved with other people's relationships? This is creepy and invasive.
1: <laughs> she strikes me as like the first ever YouTube ranter to have an opinion <laughs> about absolutely everything and everyone around her that she observed. And as I've
0: often said, every single thing God has given humanity, For our pleasure and provision and happiness and success, she has denigrated everything. Listen to this. This is from Councils to the Church, page 136. It is not pure, holy love, which leads the wife to gratify the animal propensities of her husband at the expense of health and life. (laughs) If she possesses true love and wisdom, she will seek to divert his mind from the gratification of lustful passions to high and spiritual themes by dwelling upon interesting spiritual subjects. It may be necessary to humbly and affectionately urge, even at the risk of his displeasure, that she cannot debase her body by yielding to sexual excess. She should, in a tender, kind manner, remind him that God has the first and highest claim upon her entire being, and that she cannot disregard this claim, for she will be held accountable in the great day of God. My goodness, Nikki, she is advocating that wives stop their husbands and say, my body is for God. I have to answer to him.
1: I can't give in to you tonight. And then you wonder what Paul's doing <laughs> turning over. Well, no, he's not in his grave. Let me. <laughs> Paul's not in his grave. <laughs> but then you think of the words of Paul who said, not to fail coming together as a married couple, except for fasting and prayer. I couldn't even find the reference anywhere in this
0: chapter for 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is an easy-to-explain passage. I will only say that the more I trust Scripture, the more I ask the Lord to show me how to submit my life to His Word, and the more I ask Him to show me how to be faithful to Him and to be faithful to my husband— and to be faithful to my family, the more these words make sense. But the Adventists never deal with this. 1 Corinthians eleven eight 8 through 11. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Not completely sure how to explain that. Hmm. And then, however, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And then verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. When you realize that God has made an order in creation, an order that comes from Genesis, and it's part of being in God's image, because Paul also says in this chapter that Christ is the head of the man The man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. There is an order that we can't completely explain, but it exists by God's decree. That is not about power. That is about protection. It's about care and responsibility and no one being left out in the open without somebody understanding and looking out for them. And the man knows that Christ is the head of him. And he answers to Christ for the way he treats the woman. This book does not deal with that. This book is just, we have to look out for ourselves. And Ellen says, the woman is responsible to God. And there's no sense of honoring the husband as scripture asks her to honor the husband. And she certainly doesn't do a good job of talking about what it means that the husband is the head of the wife, as
1: Christ is the head of the church. And how can she? She's not the prophet of a church. In fact, I think that they even said in this chapter that the woman comes the closest on earth to working with God. It does say that. I remember as I first started hearing about some of this stuff when I was leaving Adventism, I thought it was kind of harsh criticism. It didn't reflect everything I saw in Adventism. But I want to say, I think everyone listening who has either been Adventist or who is, can admit that we don't show each other our worst sides. We don't talk about the things that might shame our family. We have a lot of secrets. We put our best foot forward for each other, not just the world. And I think that we also know that there's a lot of fruit that betrays the kind of abuses that occur inside of Adventism. There are a lot of eating disorders from the health message. There are a lot of instances of sexual abuse inside the school system, in the home. And you know what? If, if you don't think you've ever been sexually abused, I just want to say compulsive enemas, that's sexual abuse. Yes. And I know not everybody goes through that, but I know a lot of people grew up under that kind of, uh, shall we say care yes. from their parents. There are a lot of dynamics, emotional enmeshment, spiritual abuse, shame, guilt, manipulation, verbal abuse. Even just that sense of not being good enough or loved, that loneliness, that's all the fruit of Adventist teaching. Absolutely. That is not Christianity. Mm -hmm. So don't give up on scripture. Don't give up on God because everything you saw out of Adventism was destructive and painful because that is not the truth. That is not Christianity. The true Jesus couldn't fail. The true Jesus is God the
0: Son, conceived of the Holy Spirit without sin, he took our sin in Himself, in His body, to the cross, and He broke the power of sin, and He broke the curse of sin, and His sacrifice was sufficient for each one of us. I know what it is to try to come into a worldview that is biblically based after having been immersed in an Adventist worldview, and I know what it's like to realize that I have sinned against others unconsciously even, because of the sins that were done to me. And we have to come to the point where we say, Lord Jesus, I repent. Please forgive me for the ways I have hurt the people in my life that are dear to me, even when I was unaware that I was doing it. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to plant me in reality. I want you to teach me truth. I want to be born of you and he will do it. His cross is enough, his love is enough, and it's not the love of the Adventist Jesus which held a guilty condemnation over our heads. The real Jesus finished the atonement, he reigns on high, and we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father when we trust Jesus. And if you haven't trusted him, if you haven't experienced him transferring you out of the darkness of the shame and the guilt and the fear and the despair that was yours in Adventism, if you haven't experienced that, we ask that you trust him and he's
1: faithful. He will bring you into his own kingdom and give you eternal life now. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new ministry news every Friday. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we examine Fundamental Belief 24, Christ's Ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary. We'll see you then.